Welcome to Kona Stories, a show by people of color for people of color and everyone else. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians, an associate of Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments or opinions I express are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Anthony Galloway, our other co-host, could not join us today, unfortunately. But we're going to move on with our conversation today, which is another grab bag, mostly focused around stuff that SCOTUS has been up to, the Supreme Court. I don't even know where to get started or how many we can get covered in the time that we have. But I guess the first thing that um, happened that probably in timeline wise was um, the ICWA ruling. Yeah, I mean, so in terms of timeline, I guess if we were to try to put that a little bit in context, because it's been um, a few weeks since we've recorded. Mm-hmm. And so, but the the ICWA or the Indian Child Welfare Act um, decision came out, I think, almost two and a half, three weeks ago. And <clears throat> what was, to me, surprising um, and and while it left me a little perplexed, but perplexed in a good way, because I think in Indian country, many of us were dreading that the Supreme Court was going to rule in favor of the plaintiffs who brought this case forward, arguing that the Indian Child Welfare Act which had been put together um, by the tribes as a way to keep Indian children who had been forcibly removed on many different levels from Indian families via through boarding schools and or via through through foster foster homes or adoption agencies. And I mean forcibly, I mean some children were removed from hospitals and then their mothers lied to about those kids. But anyways, the Indian Child Welfare Act had been put in place to give tribes the ability to have some say if an Indian child was to be removed from their family and all, and as a way to keep that child connected to their, to, um, their ancestors, their identity. For people who are still trying to understand, essentially the law says that an uh, indigenous child should be placed with same or similar, same family, you know, within the blood relatives or, or similar, like uh, Dad was saying, within the same tribal community, so that the child can then continue uh, their cultural upbringing uh, and honor those uh, traditions that are so valuable to uh, Native country. So. And so the plaintiffs brought this case forward, arguing that the Indian Child Welfare Act was unconstitutional because it was based on race. And so there was a white family that was trying to adopt a native child. Um, ICWA kind of prevented that adoption from moving forward 
because the child was was enrolled in in a tribe and that tribe exercised its rights to try to place that child with a relative or someone connected to that tribe or American Indian community. So this case made it all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court essentially ruled that the Indian Child Welfare Act was not based on race, but essentially based on tribal sovereignty. So where many of us were expecting um, this, this very conservative Supreme Court to rule in favor of the plaintiffs, it was quite surprising to us when they in fact upheld tribal sovereignty and argued and essentially said that the Indian Child for um, the Indian Child Welfare Act was not based on race, which fits in with the political um, the political identity, the, the 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 political standing that that uh, Indigenous people have in this country is that because of the nation-to-nation relationship that we have with the uh, federal government and that covered treaty-making and rights and all that that are inherent with that, um, that it did um, give us a political standing that differs. You know, it doesn't make us better, right? doesn't make us any better, but it just differs. And there have been a few times on counter stories where I've kind of mentioned that as as a people, we don't consider ourselves a minority because of that political status, because of that tribal sovereignty. And in this case, the Supreme Court had upheld that. Four or five years ago, while I was still teaching at Metro, I had the opportunity to facilitate a discussion around a documentary called Blood Memory. And um, that documentary um, involved individuals here from from Minnesota, um, one of which was one of the lawyers who brought this case in front of the Supreme Court, who who originally worked here in Minnesota, was... uh, was instrumental in opening up the Indian Child Welfare Center over in Minneapolis, and um, and 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 explained and you know we we watched the documentary, and then I had four we had four individuals sitting on the stage talking about that documentary, and of course this came up because he had been. He had once been fighting on the side of ICWA and then has spent the past 10 years fighting against ICWA, and, and, uh, which makes him very unique, also being of Native descent. He's also indigenous and American Indian, which, you know, just even, even made that issue much more, I think, interesting and complicated. The ICWA case, um, it was a, a major victory in Indian country. I mean, all my friends um, who identify as Indigenous were just posting yeah. very heartfelt messages, right, on, on LinkedIn in particular, where I, where I tend to be and gravitate to, uh, as as 
not only as a relief, but more so, as you said, Don, very aptly, a surprise and a shock. Um, but I also want to hold up, though, that in Minnesota courts, in particularly juvenile court, uh, there has been a strong effort statewide that also is part of a national movement that judges be trained in ICWA and that there should be what are called lead ICWA judges across the state for every judicial district. Uh, and in my family, uh, my husband is, is the chief uh, lead designated ICWA judge for his district and the district that he presides. Um, and so I wanted to just call that out to say there are some efforts in the judiciary to really address the decades-long, well, centuries-long uh, um, injustices to Native families. Uh, and I remember when I started in this space over 30 years ago, when I was at the House of Representatives uh, drafting legislation here in St. Paul, uh, this was a big this was a big issue, uh, the placement of ICWA children, uh, children, indigenous children, and, and to follow the ICWA law or not. And pervasively, counties throughout the state were not following it. Uh, and for, for things to now finally start taking shape three decades later, I mean, that's also too late, right? <laughs> but it's, it's being done of all the damage that has been done to community by this particular Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court justices, that that is at least one light that gives me some sense of um, hope uh, for Native families and, and uh, Indian country in particular. Well, it's interesting you, you bring that up, Luz, because it's been a long, a long, hard-fought battle. I mean... You know, I remember lobbying uh, the Ramsey County commissioners back in the, I, I, my God, back in the 90s, um, late 80s, 90s, to get them um, to create an ICWA office for in, in Ramsey County child welfare. And, you know, same with Hennepin County. I mean, Hennepin and Ramsey County, you know, the two the two counties with, with the largest populations were instrumental, but there are 87 counties in Minnesota, mm -hmm. and that meant often we got 87 different interpretations of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so there have been multiple efforts between the tribes and the state to try to get all those counties on the same on the same understanding and same interpretation of what the Indian Child Welfare Act is, just on the county level, you know, just just in terms of who they're supposed to notify when they're um, when they're in the process of removing Indian children from their homes, we couldn't even get that. And so there have been two, three renditions of of tribal state agreements concerning ICWA, and so at now to hear that it, it's now moving to the judicial level because the same issue we had as tribal individuals dealing with counties when it came to our children being removed was even more difficult because many of the judges didn't understand it, just as you said. And so the fact, you know, so we, 
as Native peoples always found ourselves having to educate every level in the judicial system, starting from county social workers on up to get them to understand what the Indian Child Welfare Act is. So it is heartwarming to hear that they are at least now beginning to create these judicial areas where at least one judge has that understanding. But that tells me that we still have a lot of work because if they can only assign that responsibility to one judge and the rest of them don't have to worry about it, it's much how it's kind of the same same way we go about dealing with uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in large businesses or corporations. It's assigned to one person. That person takes it on. No one else has any responsibility. And then when that person leaves, we're back to the same spot. Yeah. So I, I might be overreaching, but that's my initial reaction to how that's yeah. being set up. So, so it is so it is a good thing, mm-hmm. but that still means we have a long ways to go because we have way too many other judges who aren't won't be at that same point as where your husband's at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm happy, but you can hear my frustration. I hear it, and it's well placed. Um, so to be clear. He's lead ICWA judge, but there, uh, there's another judge on juvenile court who also has that understanding. And any, and um, there was a person before him, and and the chief judge uh, and part of the judiciary have committed to to making sure that this continues. Uh, whether it goes beyond juvenile court, I I'm not clear. You know, so that's a, another area to focus on in the future for sure. But to your point earlier about the county workers, the beauty of having a chief ICWA, or not a chief, a lead ICWA judge assigned to these cases, at least in juvenile court, is the judge then uh, will require that the county workers hold up and follow the law, right? So that's the beauty of that, is to have that level of accountability and oversight uh, so that the county workers don't have the discretion to opt out, if you will, the way or look the other way and ignore it the way they have his, systemically done for uh, generations, right? So that's that is um, a light in the, at the end of the tunnel, but like anything else, um, it shouldn't be just like you said, an isolated effort. It should be really more widespread. I should say, to give uh, these judges um, credit, they are part of a national association and gathering that they gather on a at least monthly basis, maybe even more frequent than that, where they discuss trends and they learn from each other and they problem, you know, identify problems, spot the issues in advance and look to really benefit and apply the ICWA law in cases to the benefit of uh, Indian children. Um, So there is that movement. Uh, It is 2023, you know, long, long overdue and likely more to come. But at the same time, Luz, that explanation, I think, helps, helps to understand, helps folks, including myself, to understand the the depth and breadth that judges um, have to have in order 
to work in the arena that they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, <laughs> I mean, I can imagine that it was just one specialty, right, in this this area that we're talking about. Right. And so, you know, and there are many different types of things. So kudos. I mean, while I'm disappointed that we're, while I'm happy that we're moving along in that a positive direction, a part of me says, "Ah, we need, you know, there's so much more that needs to be done. Um, But then at the same time, it's recognizing how complex law is and, and the work that these uh, judges do have to do to stay on top of all these rulings all these That's court right. cases. I mean, so it's yeah. it, it, it's absolutely incredible. And I also, I think we need to give kudos to the state of Minnesota, mm-hmm. who actually passed um, legislation this, this past session, strengthening the Minnesota families and VESI. I, you know, I can't think of the entire acronym that's in place, but it's a, it's, it's a, a policy that's in place that protects Minnesota families, and they actually included language in there that strengthened the protections for Indian children in the case the Supreme Court ruled against the Indian Child Welfare Act. So the state of Minnesota actually took preemptive steps Mm -hmm. in case that ruling came down. And thank God it wasn't needed. I mean, so... So that's what I mean. That's how surprised we were because the state of Minnesota took the, that measure in anticipation of this ruling. And um, so, again, you know, that particular ruling perplexed me, surprised me. But then the recent rulings, <laughs> the recent rulings brought us, brought me back down to Mother Earth. And I think that, you know, the... The next big one is uh, their recent decision on uh, affirmative action on college admissions from mm-hmm. from Harvard and, and North Carolina, where the Supreme Court just uh, ruled that that race cannot be used as a factor in um, in admitting students to Harvard and, and North Carolina, and I think that has huge repercussions. Yeah, you know, I'm, um, this hit me really hard, the decision, and I can unpack that a little bit as to the why. Um, but I want to share some statistics that that I hope really help contextualize for folks how, how unfair this is. When you think about Harvard, 43%, 43% of white admissions to Harvard are either legacy donors, children of, or kids of faculty, or athletes. 43%, that's almost half, right? And then when you look at the Ivy League schools, of which Harvard is only one, so you think about Yale and Princeton and Stanford and and things of that sort, a recent lawsuit that was just filed actually on Monday of this week by the Lawyers for Civil Rights said that 70% of Ivy League schools, donor-related and legacy applicants are white, which means that donor-related applicants are nearly seven times more likely to be admitted than non-donor-related applicants, and legacies are nearly six times more likely to be admitted. 
when we think about this, it clearly, you know, the 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 United States has been framed and, and based foundationally on a number of, of things, but one of the principles is that meritocracy is what rules, meaning um, if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you do the hard work that you then earn uh, what, uh, you know, the land of, of promise is yours, right? Uh, the land of the American dream is yours. Uh, but this case, as well as all the statistics, uh, only two that I've reached, you know, that I've, I've shared here, and there's many, many more that uh, more statistics that, that come to mind that I have access to. Meritocracy is a myth. This is not about you earning anything. It's about you having opportunities, uh, legacy admissions in particular, and, and uh, kids of, of uh, faculty and donors. That's really where it's at. Uh, and I, I am going to step in and share a, a personal story. One of my sister's son was admitted to Harvard. He went there as an undergrad. He graduated um, from high school, top of his class, went to Harvard, and, and graduated uh, at top of his class, summa cum laude. Very bright. Um, one is now in medical school, pursuing a, a medical degree, uh, MD and PhD all at once, right? Bright kid. He had uh, three roommates uh, in Harvard. All three were legacy and or donor kids. Three of them. Three of them were white. My nephew is a son of a Mexican father and a Mexican mom. Mexican, right? Born here in the U.S. So my sister has shared with me throughout my nephew's journey in undergrad and now in graduate school, getting his MD, PhD, all the different experiences and slights that my nephew had to go through. And it came to a point where at any point in time where my nephew is walking uh, through campus uh, as an undergraduate student at Harvard with his roommates, that the roommates would try to one-up each other in terms of how much money any of their grandfathers or uncles had given and donated to the schools. One of the, the buildings was named after one of the kids' relatives, right? And they would then poke fun at each other along the lines of, well, your, your uncle only gave X million, while my grandfather gave X number of millions of dollars. And so they're one up in each other. And it was like a game for them uh, to do that. And then they'd say to my nephew, well, yeah, you don't have that money. And we know that you don't. You got in the way, you know, you're supposed to get in with your grades, but we didn't have to do that. And uh, and then they start teasing him about how much he was studying, right? Because my, my nephew loves this just be on his game all the time and, and study hard and pull the grades that he's he's been able to do so. And it was it was almost like they still wanted to one up him, right? And show him that, yeah, you don't have that money. You're here, but you're not as important as we are. And feeling that at the time, 
which is ludicrous, of course, because he came in with his grades and graduated at the end, at the top of his class with his grades, but they were still so intent on othering him and making him feel less than. So when this decision comes through last week, it hit me in various ways. Of course, it hit me collectively, right? And thinking about all of the students in, in, in the future that will not have access. Uh, it also hit me really hard to think that some of these justices, U.S. Supreme Court justices, frame their comments along the lines of, there's no more racism, so therefore we don't have to think about race anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think about all of the the pain and bloodshed that's been shed by our Black community historically and to this date um, in, in the erasure of Black people as a whole, uh, as well as, of course, Indigenous people and uh, Brown people, but mostly Blacks. I mean, let's be honest, right? Um, and then it, it, it hit me for my own family, uh, and my children. And I, it was, it, it was just, it still is, is hard for me to talk about it. Um, so I encourage folks to ask themselves, what are you doing for self-care in terms of your mental health as you are dealing with this, tr- this pain and this trauma? Uh, I know in the workplace, uh, a good idea is to have listening sessions. Um, we are doing that in, in my workplace. Um, one of the local bar association groups is also hosting listening sessions for attorneys who identify as BACPAC. Um, there is a real understanding that this is visceral for, for our Black and brown communities, indigenous communities. Um, And the fight has just been so exhausting today to think that this monumental landmark decision is one more heavy piece to have to carry is so triggering for the trauma that black folks, indigenous folks, and people of color are carrying on a daily basis. so I'll, I'll stop there. And Luz, we, we know that um, affirmative action um, is important based on everything you just said, right? But also universities in California had done away with affirmative action and they testified in front of the Supreme Court that once they did that, uh, black and brown um Applicants and enrollees dropped by 40%. They're doing specific mm-hmm. outreach and, and everything to try to get more applicants and more um, Black and Latino students to enroll but at UCLA and UC Berkeley, but they're not being successful. And they're saying, you know, affirm, we need affirmative action now. Like, we understand we they're kind of like the guinea pig of what happens is that students are applying to less competitive campuses, then they're not entering into STEM fields is what the studies have been saying. So, and yet the Supreme Court still upheld what, well, not upheld, I guess, but the Supreme Court decided to do away with it in their ruling. 
And as far as like your personal story, there's also part of me that that feels like, especially with Harvard and the Ivy League, it seems like we all know that you you get in because your legacy and that half the at least half or more of the students are there based on how much money they have or who their parents or grandparents are. And it's just kind of like accepted, right? Like though saying that to someone isn't necessarily new. We all kind of know that and it's just the way it is. And now it's just going to get worse. Because what you're, what you're dwelling into now is class and class differences. Mm-hmm. So, but that, this ruling, I mean, you know, that's essentially what, you know, what Luz just described, mm-hmm. what she was talking about, the difference that um, her relative was experiencing by folks who are born in that 1%. And if you look at the history of the Ivy League and those schools, the they're fulfilling the purpose of why they were created. And if you look at the graduates, I mean, you know, who runs this country are graduates from Harvard, Mm -hmm. Columbia. I mean, and so what you're doing. But we see that some of them are not very smart. Hey, no one said anything. You had to be intelligent (laughs) to have money. Right. We see that every day with somebody running for office. So so um, but what I'm talking about is class and, and 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 in this case, those legacies and how Harvard and these Ivy League schools, many of them with their admissions policies, maintain that, right? And mm-hmm. and so Luz just described that. Now what, you know, but this, the in the ICWA case, I pointed out that one of the lawyers who brought this forward was Native. I think the backside of this decision is the fact that this case was brought forward by Asian students who were arguing that um, that affirmative action in race needed to be eliminated because they weren't getting their spots into these universities, which, again, I think creates a backstory tension because here we have another ethnic group bringing forth um, an argument that dismantled affirmative action in in, uh, universities and colleges with Harvard and North Carolina, because you know it's going to trickle down and impact schools across the board and also impact, I think, businesses and everyone else is going to be scurrying now to decide what to do when it comes to affirmative action. And... and, um, and I think it's, it's you know, th- this decision set us back. I mean, I can't, you know, it, it just, it just set us back from, from 40, 50 years of, uh, of, of fighting civil, I mean, just fighting civil rights, just trying to gain um, an equal, an equal standing footing in this country. And I'm not even throwing in equity. I'm just talking about equality because the Supreme Court based their decision on that phrase in the Constitution that says all men are created equal. And because of that, 
race-based affirmative action was unconstitutional. I mean, that essentially was their argument. Um, so do we take that literally? Do we, I mean, how do we interpret that? Yeah. Be, you know, because, be, because if we, if we look at that, when, when this was set up, it meant when it said all men were created equal, we know through history, it meant white landowners, <laughs> right? Men, women weren't even included in that. So, this ruling just scares the bejesus out of me because our other thing's going to come forward now. You know, the largest benefactors of affirmative action in this country were white women. Not, are, are, not us. They're currently still. They're, exactly. Been I mean, for 50 years and currently remain the, the biggest beneficiaries. Yeah, for me... Um, Don, I appreciate you raising that point. So the plaintiffs, uh, the Asian plaintiffs, were represented by a group called Students for Fair Admissions, right? Um, and to be clear, according to recent data, 2020 Asian American voter survey uh, that was conducted, 70% of Asian Americans support affirmative action. It's, it's described as programs designed to help people Black people, in particular women and other BIPOCs, get better access to higher education. And that finding was echoed again in a, in a 2022 survey. So two years later, uh, 69%, so relatively the same. Um, but in a 2023 Pew survey, 53% of Asian Americans who had heard of affirmative action also believed it was a good thing, though 76% said they did not think colleges should consider race or ethnicity as a factor in admissions decisions. So that's where the the conflict comes, right? It's it's when uh, when is it applied, and it's that fine tuning of divisiveness when it comes to here's a sliver of a piece of the pie, the American dream, and if 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 we have to fight for that same sliver then it becomes, it's either you or me, it's cutthroat, yeah. right? It's yeah. very individualistic, right? Versus culturally speaking, um, and I don't want to put words in Haley's mouth, so I want her to chime in, but collectively speaking, uh, the Asian culture, much like the Latino culture, we're collectivist. Um, and so that doesn't hold true across the board. And also to be also uh, clear, there are there have been scores and scores of Asian organizations that have weighed in on that SCOTUS decision since last Thursday that speaks to them being in opposition to that ruling. So like any other group, Asians are not a monolith, a monolith either, right? Um, right. I mean, it's very people are very split. Yes. Right. In my mind, this group, the Students for Fair Admissions, really, I mean, they were using folks to get to this decision because their goal was to get to the decision. How they got there was for them to strategically find the right, quote unquote, plaintiff to be able to succeed. Um, so that's that's where I land on that. Same tactic that was used in the ICWA. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And so the person who kind of, you know, was in the forefront of that was the one Native American lawyer mm-hmm. that was part of this other kind of conservative white um, attempt to over overturn it, the Indian Child Welfare Act. And no different, no different than what you just described and what brought forward. But it's, but it's the fact that that happened even in ICWA, right? So we have, we we have this this dichotomy where it, it's a little bit of this divide and conquer, because you know what Asian students and and and, and Asian community is is not monolithic. There are so many different ethnicities that make that up that. That um, you know, you can't make any one generalization about any any particular group that we clump together. Well, we say do the same mm-hmm. thing in the Latino community, right? Same thing in the indigenous community. There are mm-hmm. there are over five hundred different tribes with over three hundred different languages, right? So right. we're not all the same. <laughs> we differ, and I right. think it also mm-hmm. feeds in with with that uh. What the the model minority stereotype mm-hmm. that 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 mm-hmm. Asians deal with and, and have to carry, right? This mm-hmm. this feeds right into it. But it's yeah. sad that we have reached this point where members from our own community are used as the tip of the spear to mm-hmm. help try to overturn these advances. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that is at play. All of it. The modern minority myth, you know, you're you're a person of color, but you're not a person of color because you're the mo- you're the model, you're ideal, you know, person of color. So, you know, there's there's that. There's there's the whole, you know, there's the, like you said, there's an array of us. There's those of us who are very new, like the Hmong, the Karen, right? There are communities who have been here for many many generations, like the Chinese and the Japanese, you know. And in in reading a lot of the the coverage on this, the responses, the most happy responses, have been from quote prominent businessmen, prominent, prominent, prominent. It's just it's just the same as in the in the white community. It's the rich guys. It's the rich guys who are so happy about this decision. You know, it's the same thing that we just talked about. You know the the. Um... The irony of all this, you know, this is why history is so important. And, and I am the first to admit I'm a history geek. When you, Hilly, you mentioned the Japanese and, and Chinese uh, being here longer and, and benefiting more from being the quote unquote model minority, is you forget, they forget, some members of, mm-hmm. of the Chinese community mm-hmm. forget that in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed by Congress. And what it did, it was the first law ever to be passed in the United States to significantly restrict immigration. It provided a 10-year ban on Chinese laborers immigrating to the U.S. I mean, there's more to that, right? And then, mm-hmm. of course, the Japanese internment camps, right? I mean, how fast people forget that, look, you have not always been viewed as a model minority, History has shown that when it's convenient for folks to lift you in a way to use you to divide and conquer, they will do so. 
But we're only one law away from that being taken away from you is what people should uh-huh. be understanding, right? And that's why it's so important for us to have our history embedded in, in what we yes. understand and do and and are empowered to really play a part in all of these analyses, right? And and to not have this divide and conquer as, as uh, Don has referenced uh, in his comments as well. But also not that, not just that have they forgotten, do they even know? We, ne- we were ne- never taught any of this in school. Mm-hmm. I never heard about any of our relationships with Asian people in any of my history classes. Well, they might mention, well, they mentioned the internment camps. They don't go in depth. Mm-hmm. You might have a class that will mention the, the Chinese uh, uh, Exclusion Act that um, that stopped Chinese immigration to the United States. Um, you Maybe might in college. Hear, well, that's what I mean. Not in high yeah, well, school. No, I didn't mean. I, I can't say that's what I mean, at least on the college level, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's those it, it's that type of history that we have been fighting to get included because it's all part of our history and it it's all part of American history. But we categorize, you know, this country categorizes it. And so we have American history, which means white. We have black American history. And we, black, we have, I mean, we, we, we come, we car, pental, we, I can't say the word. Compartmentalize. I don't, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> and, <laughs> but we do such a good job of that in this country. And then, you know, and then Native Americans are given a month and, and Latinos are given a month. I mean, you know, give me a break. Um, and in that month, we're not learning history. We're celebrating, but not learning history. I mean, so Juneteenth, for instance, right? Uh, many of these things. So... And it keeps, it helps keeps what was created in place. And we've been fighting, fighting for years as Native people, as Black people, as Asians have been excluded, um, thrown into camps. You know, they didn't round up all the Germans and the Germans were, many Germans were actively part of the Nazi party. And advocating against the United States during World War II. They didn't round them up and put them in damn concentration caps like they did the Japanese. Um, I also wanted to, to mention one more thing on the affirmative action case, which is they did carve out an exception for military academies um, in that affirmative action case, meaning that they could, military academies could use race in terms of admissions. But what that tells us is that Black bodies are disposable, <laughs> right? We don't we we don't want you to be smart and educated in Ivy League uh, or at other higher education um, institutions so that you can be competitive in the boardroom. No, we don't want that. But but we're okay if you die for this country. We're okay mm-hmm. if your body is. Um, you know, a casualty, uh, and I don't say that to dehumanize black bodies. I'm just saying that's what the Supreme Court ruled. And that, to me, 
that was the other part of the injury in my mind and my heart that I've been feeling since then is you deny the humanity of black folks in the, uh, in the majority opinion and what you've stated, but then you're going to make it worse to say, but you know, we're okay if you go to military academy and end up basically fighting for this country and losing your life. We're okay if you sacrifice. We're, you, you're disposable in that way. Harvard, that too hard just, to get um, into? Come join the military. What And what makes this incredibly ironic is that many of the mega folks who are ecstatic over this ruling concerning affirmative action, meaning that, you know, they're happy as can be that the Supreme Court overruled affirmative action in, in higher education, Harvard and North Carolina. Uh, but because of the legacy and everything else, uh, none of their kids would be admitted or very few. So it, you know, it's, <laughs> that is where it, it, it just blows me away because they're in favor of this ruling and yet their own offspring stand a very minimal chance of being admitted to those same institutions, even though they are white. And that's where that it, class thing comes in. It's the voting against your best interest. You're being tricked into believing something and you vote, you vote for it, even if it's against... You know, even if it, it takes something away from you. Well, the one last thing I want to add on the affirmative action, and you you hit the nail on, you alluded to it, hitting the nail on the head with the word voting. That's the other part that I want to lift up here. This is why it is so critical for all of us to go out to vote every single election, because the the conservative majority on the Supreme Court. They're a majority only in numbers, but their mindset is a minority in terms of numbers in our country, right? Mm -hmm. So we are now mm -hmm. being uh, guided and ruled by law by the minority mindset, but they have the majority in numbers. And yeah. I just want to connect the dots there for our, our communities that this is why it's so critical to always, always encourage 100% voting, voting, uh, voter turnout in our BIPOC communities, heck, in all communities, but in our vested interest to make sure that we show up all the time, right? Every election, whether it's, it's city, county, state, federal, show up because those who show up end up reaping the rewards. And, and we're seeing this in, in living color. So um, to add injury to insult, so not only did we lose affirmative action, there was another court ruling, the Supreme Court came down, that ruled in favor of a Christian conservative woman who refused to provide, and I don't, I, I don't know what exact type of service it was. It was a website, website service. Website designer. And that... And, you know, she didn't, Her she argued that her religious beliefs, she didn't feel she needed to, to provide that service, I think, to some gay individuals who reached out 
to have her provide that service. And she refused on her religious beliefs. Well, the Supreme Court upheld her case, essentially stating that her right of free speech overrides, even if the state you reside in have anti-discrimination laws in place, essentially. That's what this really... So she, they ruled in favor, stating that her freedom of speech overweighs um, having to provide a service to an entity or anybody who she personally uh, doesn't believe she has. She wants to do it because it's against her religious belief. So we it's start her there. Christian faith, her Christian belief. I'm, I don't know if it would. I don't. I'm saying if somebody said this and said it's because my Muslim faith prevents me from doing it, I don't know if the ruling would have been the same. Oh no! Heck no! But <laughs> hell, hell no! Are you kidding me? So. So, but, but that, but here we go, because you start there and that means soon, you know, we'll be back to the, I think it was the green book, right? As black and as people of color, because this opens the door for now anyone to use this Christian belief thing to refuse, start to begin to refuse service to anybody they don't like. Mm-hmm. Because it's their free speech. So here we go. So now we're back to the green book, right? Where it's safe for black people to go eat and where they can go stay in this hotel. And you know what? And here we go. And and um <clears throat> I mean, so this one just kind of on top of the uh loss of affirmative action is just is it's just blowing me away. I mean, and we already have efforts by one party trying to overturn history, right? Banning books. I mean, just, I just, I I cannot believe the times that we're in and all the setbacks that have happened in the past month um, and years, past year or so, um, across this country that has just taken us back, almost essentially back to the Jim Crow era. Am I, I mean, I'm sorry, go ahead, Luz, please. No, you you make some good points, Don, and, and to just to add insult to injury, it was pretty much a hypothetical, um, you know, in terms of what this website designer company was, uh, was doing. Uh, over the weekend, I also read that one of the named examples, uh, the man who was in a gay relationship was used as part of the analysis and the argument set forth by the plaintiff's attorney, which is uh, Senator Hawley's wife, um, he didn't sign in for that. He didn't sign up for that. And, and he was interviewed and he says, I, was, I had no knowledge that I had been used in that way, right? Uh, and it doesn't, it's, it's, it's not valid now because of the ruling still holds. Uh, so that just adds insult to injury. Because another recent Supreme Court decision that absolutely perplexed me um, 
for the very, and I think for the very same reasons that we've been arguing about why this recent decision was horrible when it came to affirmative action and race and, and um, admittance is how the Supreme Court overruled or did not rule in favor of where was it Georgia and uh, was it Georgia and North Carolina? Yeah, that Supreme Court case uh, was with regard to Alabama, actually. And their whole um, redistricting, where <clears throat> um, where they actually stated that they could not redistrict the way they did because it diluted the votes of black voters in the state of Georgia. And if and and while I'm ecstatic over that decision, I'm blown away that this conservative court um ru- ruled the way they did. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, I'm ecstatic about it, but it per- totally perplexed me um where in one one decision they ruled on race, stating that they couldn't redistrict in Georgia, diluting black votes. And then in another, they eliminate race as a, as a factor to be admitted into colleges and universities. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I can't always understand the, the some of the legal reasoning they use in, in these. Um, and, and so that, that's why I'm saying this court just perplexes me. In their in some of their decisions, good or bad. No no comments. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say I mean I'm almost like in situations like that. I don't even know if they're aware that they're doing it like at all, or they are aware and they don't care. Because in my mind, they're all, you know, being led by private interest groups anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm some like I don't believe in the system, but I I don't believe in the system. Um, so I'm a, you know, so it's like, oh, let's do something really great for black people, and then tomorrow let's take this away from black people. It's like, yeah. Okay, because, you know, that lobbyist got you in that one or you made a deal with that person to give this to them so they could do that. Politics. I'm just against politics. Even if they knew they're doing it, even if they are aware of it, they don't care. When we think about that, and and the reason it's so hard to understand is is, um, it doesn't make sense, right? I mean... There's a dissonance in our minds that we're trying to reconcile because usually logic, you can reconcile logic, right? But it is, uh, it is irregular on how they are approaching these various decisions. And there are other uh, interests in mind, you know, at heart. Um, justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas, is not the only justice who has been accepting these um lavish packages, travel, and things of that sort. There are other justices Mm -hmm. that have since uh, in the last week or two 
um, the decisions have come out, that's also been uh, one that has come out in terms of the other other justices on the Supreme Court. And and right now there's a discussion as to holding justices uh, accountable for these, what I called at least perception of uh, election or, you know, not election, I should say that, perception of um, inappropriate acceptance of gifts, right? Um, and it, while it there may not be technically a violation, we have in, in law what's called the appearance of impropriety. Just the very appearance that it's wrong should be enough to guide any attorney, which of course all the Supreme Court justices are, to be on, on the correct side, which is err on the side of, of ethics and safety so that your ethics are not called into question. And in this case, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court justices, their impartiality should not be called into question uh, by way of having any appearance of impropriety. Uh, and that's, you know, that's where we're at right now. And it goes to privilege and it goes to access and it goes to class mm -hmm. and it goes to nepotism. I mean, there's, there's a lot that comes to play and what it ultimately will do, unfortunately, is erode the public trust in our court mm -hmm. system. And that mm -hmm. is the most damaging part. In addition to the actual damage that's being caused to community is that just judges, whether at the local, state, or federal level, they're all intended to be impartial and we're supposed to be able to trust them. They're not political, quote unquote, nonpartisan, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. this behavior and conduct all calls that into question and it has us all questioning the trust that we have in our judiciary. And that's really hard mm -hmm. when you think about there's three branches of government, right? So losing the trust in our judiciary, the the U.S. Supreme Court in particular, use, losing our trust with regard to the executive branch, the president's uh, office in the past, right? And then, of course, legislatively and, and the trust issues at Congress. So how do we call ourselves a democracy when we, the democracy itself, the very pillars, the three prongs to our democracy are being called into question. And that note, um, I wish we could have ended on something better. So um, Anthony, you know, he's our grab bag host. So poor Downer me is sitting in. Uh, these rulings, man, they're, you, you never know how they're going to go. Um, these days more than, more than ever, I feel like. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll keep talking about it here on Counter Stories. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendro's Group. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Thanks for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. 